Again, we are excited that you're here, and uh, thank you for joining us on our official launch day. As we get going, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work. So join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful for the day. All around this area, uh, D.C. Metro, and right here in Alexandria are gospel-centered, Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving churches who are gathering as we are here. And Lord, we just lift them up. I lift up Franconia Baptist Church, who have been... Um, just a great support to us. We lift up Grace Church of Alexandria and just for their love, for their prayer, and for their support. We lift up all those who right now are praying for us. And Lord, we return the favor and just pray that you would meet them this morning by your spirit. Lord, we pray for our time, that, uh, that you would open our ears, that so we might hear you better, that you might open our eyes, so we might see Jesus a little bit more clearly. Lord, and that we would honor him with our time and with our words. I pray Lord, that, uh, that I would be faithful to your scriptures today and that I would serve our people well. And I pray this in Jesus' great name. And everybody said, amen, amen. and amen. Well, we preach uh, all of our messages are from the, from the Bible, uh, really expositorily. We go line by line through scripture. Um, and so if you have a Bible, turn it to Matthew 16. We're going to be there. If you don't have a Bible, I would love to give you one as a gift. As you came in, there's a table there uh, with a ton of Bibles on it. We have a lot of them. And so if you like a Bible, uh, we usually use the ESV version. That is a gift to you, and so you can get it now. Or if you like, you can get it as you leave. Nobody's going to stop you if, if you want to pick that up. Uh, help yourself. Um, one of our traditions, we, don't have, we haven't been around long enough to have a lot of traditions, but one of our traditions is that we read the scriptures out loud. Uh, you know, the, the Apostle John in Revelation actually said these words. There's a blessing when the scripture is read out loud. Now, he was applying that specifically to the words of, of his revelation, but I think that um, God wouldn't be displeased if we also apply that to this verse of scripture that we're going to read here together. So I'm in uh, the, the 16th chapter of Matthew, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 19, and I'm going to encourage you to read with me, out loud. Maybe a first time for some of you, but I think we're going to get through it. So here we go. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So as we launch the transit for the next two weeks, I hope to share with you a little bit about who we are, um, why we exist, why God has called this church to existence and the nature of the church. That's really what we're going to cover for the next two weeks. And then, as I said, on the 12th of May, we'll get into a series on the book of Galatians. I want to share with you our mission, our vision, our values over these next two weeks. So you get a glimpse of, of who we are. 
answer the question of why the transit, which I think is a, a good question to ask, especially for those of you who are with us today, maybe checking us out. The text today answers two key questions. Who is Jesus and what is the church? Who is Jesus and what is the church? And I hope to convey that to you as we open these few words of, of Jesus in uh, this first gospel that Matthew wrote. So uh, my first point, who is, who is Jesus? You know, all kinds of people have thoughts about who Jesus is. All kinds of people have thoughts about who Jesus is. And, and all of us in this room are, are no different. Pop culture has images of Jesus. Jesus habitually appears in the cartoons. Now, not the Saturday morning cartoons that my kids and your kids probably watch. Have you ever seen that? I know a couple of y'all, even if you won't admit it. A couple of y'all have seen the adult cartoon, The Simpsons, or um, what's that other one called? South Park. Jesus has long, dark hair. He wears a white robe. He's got a little necklace on. He's like he's hip. He's got, you know, he's got facial hair. He's friends with Homer Simpson, who, by the way, Homer's been baptized. He knows God intimately. Um, that, that is the Jesus from South Park. Any Duck Dynasty fans? Now, I know there's a couple of Duck Dynasty fans in this room. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but at the end of every Duck Dynasty episode, Phil Robertson gathers his family around this huge table, and whatever escapade they have uh, encountered on, whether it's hunting frogs or getting lost in the swamp, you know, all those kind of things that they so, um, you know, hilariously do, at the end of the episode, the day, he gathers his family around, many, multiple generations of his family, and they give thanks to Jesus for his bounty and for all that he has allowed them to do. Jesus is all over the fashion industry. Oftentimes, many of us adorn ourselves with the accessory of a necklace with a cross on the end of it. Sometimes Jesus is hanging on there. And many times it means that I have faith in Jesus. Sometimes it's just, it's just my accoutrement. It's just a thing that I wear to make my outfit look good. The, uh, the, the hot T-shirt a few years ago was a Jesus is my homeboy T-shirt. And the likes of Ben Affleck and um, Madonna, all these people were wearing this T-shirt. And, of course, it became popular because those people were wearing it. Uh, let's skip over to the music world. Singers in the likes of Kanye West, American Idols, Carrie Underwood, and the ever-popular U2 are all singing very popular songs about Jesus. In the sports world, skip over to there. There's actually a group in the wrestling federation called Wrestlers for Jesus. And I, I want to give this caveat. Wrestling really is a spiritual sport. I don't know how many of you maybe have dabbled into wrestling. In Ephesians 6, it says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with what the, we wrestle with principalities and powers and rulers. And, you know, it, it goes on. So wrestling is a spiritual sport. So they are probably right to say that Jesus, you know, wrestling for Jesus um, everybody that's anybody knows what T-Bowing is. Uh, the famous spiritual gesture by quarterback Tim Tebow as he kneels, takes a knee in the end zone after he scored or his team has scored a touchdown, giving honor to Jesus for their team's, uh, their team's success. Those are just a few of many. We could spend all day talking about pop culture images of Jesus. We could also spend another week talking about other religions, cults and what the evangelical world would call uh, occultic organizations that, for the most part, say everything and anything about Jesus in regards to who he is 
uh, such as he's a manifestation of God, he might be a prophet, or he's just a mere enlightened man. As we jump into the text, verses 13 and 14, um, the disciples' response to Jesus proved that the culture of Jesus' day is really no different than the culture of our day. And so um, right here we have Peter and the disciples had left the Sea of Galilee midway through the nation of Israel, and they traveled north to an area called, uh, actually in the, the Old Testament times, it was called the Gates of, of Hades, okay? Caesarea Philippi. This was a politically pregnant area. It was a, uh, a tense area because of some of the politics that was, that was going on in regards to those who were in leadership at the time. And so Jesus asked this question, you know, who do people around say, that, I mean, what's the pop culture image of me? Let me know, let me know what you hear. And the disciples actually give him some flattering responses. Uh, they say, well, some people call you John the Baptist. And you guys know, you guys have heard of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was a forerunner of Jesus. He had the same message. John the Baptist's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, when he came on the scene, had the very same message. That wasn't a bad comparison. Then they said, well, some actually call you Elijah. Elijah was one of the most notable prophets in the Old Testament. There are 16 recorded miracles that Elijah performed in the Old Testament. The only one that surpasses him is his, his prodigy, Elisha, who did 32. Uh, he also says, some people call you Jeremiah. And of course, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's the one that uh, prophesied, foretold that uh, Israel would be taken into captivity on the, the Babylonians. And that actually happened. None of these are bad comparisons in and of themselves. So pop culture didn't get it wrong necessarily. What, they, what, what the answers that Jesus got from his disciples, they, they didn't pale. They were just pale comparisons in terms of who Jesus really is. And so in verse 15, Jesus repeats the question and he turns it into a personal question directed at the hearts of those who were his closest friends, his closest disciples. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? You give me the pop culture answer. Who do you say that I am? And I would tell you this question is, was written a couple thousand years ago. But the same question that Jesus asked of his closest friends is appropriate for us today. Who do we say that Jesus is? Um, is he the image of the cross on your neck? Is he the religious tradition that you gained from your parents is he personified in some social activity, some act of kindness or doing good to those who are around you? Is that who Jesus is for you? So verse 16, very profoundly, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The disciples are asked the greatest question in all the world and they give Peter gives the right answer. He got it right. And this was this was exactly Peter's character. He was bold in his action. Peter spoke and then thought after he spoke. Okay. And so Jesus asked the question. The other disciples came up with some pop culture answers. And Peter just said, that's not it. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. What was Peter saying? Firstly, he was, he called him the Christ. The Christ means anointed one. Peter was talking really from an Old Testament perspective. He was saying, you're the Messiah. You're the one that the Jews, the nation of Israel, um, thought was going to come and overthrow the government and restore Israel to her prominence. That's what Peter 
was calling Jesus. He also used this word, son of God. Peter was acknowledging Jesus' deity. He was saying, you, Jesus, really are God. You actually are God. It was as if Peter was reflecting back. I don't, we don't know if he was actually at Jesus' baptism when he started his ministry. And um, it says that God spoke from heaven. And the Holy Spirit fell on him like a dove as he was being baptized, commissioned for his memory, his, uh, his ministry. But Peter actually was in a, a similar circumstance as this on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus appeared with Elijah and Moses, and they all were glorified. And God spoke out of heaven. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Do what he said. This is what Peter was likely recalling when he said, you're the Christ, the son of of a living God. So I guess ask that question again. What is who do you think of Jesus? And what do we do with this confession 2000 years plus as Peter replied? Famous British author C.S. Lewis quoted these intriguing words. He said Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's a lord. And by that he means despite what we all may personally believe Jesus is one of these. And if he is one of these, we need to act accordingly. So if he's a liar, then Jesus actually did blaspheme God as a Jew, and he deserved the crucifixion as the punishment that he got. If he's a lunatic, then like all people who have disabilities and mental uh, incapabilities, then we should pity him, we should pray for him. But if Jesus is actually the Lord, then guess what? We should worship him. We should worship him. Verse 17, Jesus responds to Peter's confession. And the words say, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And from this verse, I would just tell you, recognition of who Jesus is must come from God. In order to recognize who Jesus is, we need help, divine help from God. And this is why I say that. Think about this. These disciples from Jesus' baptism up until this very moment were about two and a half to three years of time. And they had seen they had been intimate friends with Jesus. They knew who his mother and his brothers were. They knew where he lived. They knew they walked with him. They saw him heal. They saw him perform some miraculous Signs that ordinarily you would think it would point to him as being God. They saw him give compassion. They saw him forgive sin, which only God can do. Yet it's at this moment, two and a half years from all this time they're walking with him, that they get the revelation that Jesus actually is God. You can't just meet Jesus, folks. You can't just meet him. God has to show himself to us. Like he showed Peter in this moment, like he showed the disciples. John 6, Jesus says these words in the Gospel of John. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And from this, I would say the spirit draws us. The spirit draws us to God. We can't know God apart from God's action, his initiation, his invitation. And so this at once should first intrigue us because a lot of times the common thought is that, well, I'm going to decide when I come to God. And in fact, we, a lot of us do that. Uh, we may, you may have grown up in a Christian home. You may have been around people who were spiritual or uh, had a genuine faith. 
and you use these words, I'm going to sow my wild oats, or I'm going to do what I want to do before I take on this life of religion or life of faith. A lot of us do that. But this verse is saying we can't just be walking down the street with our hands in our pockets, listening to our, whatever we got on our iPod, and then have the epiphany that, that, that I'm going to serve God. This, I'm going to go to church this weekend and serve God. That doesn't happen unless God the Holy Spirit is first drawing you to the very thing that you think that you are planning to do. This verse should intrigue us, but this verse should also encourage us that God is calling a people to himself. And that really is what God is doing. Right here in our neighborhood, right here in Alexandria, Virginia, and whatever surrounding areas you come from, God is drawing a people to himself. And all of us are on different points in our journey of life. There's some who have yet to read a Bible. There's some who have yet to step through the doors of a worship gathering or a church like we all hear today. There's some people who have yet to acknowledge who Jesus is, but God is calling them. And here's the neat thing. He's using people like us who are also somewhere on the continuum of that journey to identify those who God has called and share with them the good news of, of what you believe about Jesus, his, his perfect life, his death and his resurrection, and to help along the way, to help God, the Holy Spirit, draw them. And so verse 16, Jesus' response, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will tell you. We don't have enough time to actually unpack this the way that uh, it deserves. This is a highly controversial package, uh, highly, highly controversial uh, passage. Uh, too much in it for us to get um, into for my sermon today. But I will tell you, it's controversial. Uh, it's important and it's controversial. Important because this is the very first time Jesus uses the word church. The very first time. It's controversial because of the way the sentence is structured Peter says that the church is going to be built upon a rock and there's a lot. We could line up scholars and they would all have a different perspective on. Well, what is the rock? Is the rock uh, Jesus himself? Is the rock Peter or is the rock his confession? And I would tell you in Jeff's simplicity, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a couple of those. All right. Jeff's not a scholar, but as Jeff sort of listens to his seminary professor and makes um, you know, makes sense of this. First, the rock was Peter. Okay, grammatically, if we would take some time to study this, the rock was Peter. But not just Peter, the, sing, the, the man, because that's what, you know, elevating Peter, exalting Peter is what created the Catholic Church and the, and the papacy and the Pope and all that. And that's not the intent of the, of the passage. But the passage is talking about Peter, his leadership, his leadership of the apostles, his, his future leadership of the early church. If you'll recall back to when Jesus first met Peter, he said, You're, I'm going to call you Cephas. That was Peter's Aramaic, Aramaic nickname, meaning little rock, little pebble. Okay? So Jesus had always been calling Peter a rock. He knew that he was going to be something formidable for the kingdom of God. And so this, this rock that Jesus was going to build a church on did include Peter, but not just Peter the man. Peter, the leader that was going to, to be really a foundation that God could build something on. But you can't separate Peter, the man, from Peter and his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so this rock also means Peter and his confession. So let's put that together. Upon this rock, 
the apostolic leaders of whom Peter would be a leader and plow ground with, and those who confess Jesus as Lord, which would be people like you and I. All of us who confess Jesus as Lord of our life, Lord God, Savior and King, we're trying to follow him, we're submitting to him, um, looking at his example and, and doing likewise. That's what he's saying. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Here's why this interchange is so important. Uh, anybody and everybody is looking for a Messiah. The Jews were looking for a Messiah. The disciples were looking for a Messiah. They, they had hung out with Jesus and did not even know that the Messiah was among them. And so when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? He's also asking those men there, who do you think the Messiah is? And, and I already alluded to this. They thought the Messiah was going to be a Russell Crowe gladiator type figure that had a cut off dress and some armor on had a dog by his side. He's coming with an army in tow, and he was going to use that army to overthrow Rome and there free the the Jews from any plight, all the plight that they suffered in the Old Testament and still were suffering under the Roman government, and they would be a great nation once again. Guess what? That's not how Jesus came. He came humble. He came lowly. He confounded their notion of a Messiah. But here's the other guess what? We are all looking for a Messiah. It's not just Peter and the disciples or the Jews looking for a Messiah. We're all looking for someone to rescue us, to save us from circumstances and situations in our life that we need relief from. This is the truth. Some of us look to people. Um, we look to the president, perhaps. We're in D.C., and so the, the politics is anything and everything around here. And so we think we put a man in office, we get his administration, a certain, you know, political persuasion or some kind of government entity at large is going to save me as long as we can get them in the office. We're always looking for a Messiah. Some people seek perfection in this life. If I only look perfect, if I do things perfectly, if I feel good, then I'm going to, you know, that's going to save me. Some of us allow the entertainment world, just like it defines the image of Jesus. Some of us allow the entertainment world to decide who our Savior should be. Some look to philosophy and existentialism. You know, whatever I think, whatever I feel is the way it's going to be. As if any of these entities can change or make us better or save us. Jesus confounded the notion of Messiah. He says, I'm not coming as a political revolutionary. I'm not going to come as Russell Cole all decked out with an army. I'm coming by myself. I got a few angels, but they're in the background. I'm coming with a spiritual revolution where the first will be last. The greatest is the least. Where those who want to go to the kingdom of heaven must bow their knee to me. He says his focus is on his church. I'm going to build my church. So what's the church? This is my second point. Church means ecclesia. Ecclesia, actually, um, in the Greek. It's a compound Greek word that means called out, but also to assemble. So the called out assembly. You know, most people associate church with a building. You know, we say, I'm going to church as if church is something that we do. 
Here, Jesus is saying church is not something that we do. Jesus says the church is people that I died for. It's who we are. And so before you all came into, well, first of all, y'all, we're not in a church, right? I mean, we're in a school. Look around you. It's, there were kids here probably Friday making a mess of the place. I shouldn't say that. That's probably wrong. Um, well, you know, we have to clean up the room a little bit. Okay, so before we came in, you were the church because the church is people. It's not a building. Here's a definition that I like of church. It's the community of people who are called out of the who are called out of the community of the world to advance the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being God's rulership on planet Earth. The kingdom of God and the church go hand in hand. They really are inseparable. God is using the church as his plan A to advance his kingdom. They go hand in hand and one serves the other. Let's go to verse 18. And I tell you, this is Jesus speaking. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. I will build my church. Those are important words. And Jesus is saying two things. He's saying this is personal for me. He's also saying, secondarily, I'm going to build it. So what makes a church Jesus church? What makes a church Jesus church? I think the first thing that makes a church Jesus church is that it's under Jesus authority. So for the transit church, Jesus is our chief shepherd. He is our overseer. And we look to the example of scripture uh, as the Holy Spirit, you know, gives us discernment about how we are to operate. Underneath Jesus would be all the elders and pastors. Right now we, only, we got one, me. And I, we got a couple of overseers in other churches that, that sort of look at Jeff and his life and how he's leading his family and how he's leading the church and taking care of the finances of the church and all that. Okay? And underneath that, of course, we're, we're a young church, so this, this hierarchy that I'm talking about is, is coming. It's not in existence yet. It's just coming. Jesus is there. I'm here. Underneath that would be other elders and pastors. Underneath that would be deacons. The word deacon means servant, okay? And deacons serve both, uh, both the members of the church and the leaders. And then underneath that would be the office of member, and that would be all of you, okay? And there are responsibilities that people like you are to have in a church, and we'll talk more about that in a future membership class. So the first uh, you know, first thing that makes a church, Jesus' church, is we're under his authority. We look to him uh, to help us and guide us. The second thing would be that a church takes on Jesus' mission. And we find Jesus' mission in the Great Commission. He says in Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so Jesus uses a couple verbs here in this, this great passage. He first uses the word go. Then he says, make disciples. He says, baptize them and teach them. We're, we're, the, we're Jesus' go. We're his go. We're supposed to go. Go do something. And he explains that in other places in the Bible, primarily in Acts, that we're, we're supposed to go to our local area, find those who don't know Jesus and introduce them to him. We're supposed to go into our region, find people who don't know Jesus and introduce them to him. 
And we're supposed to go to all the world, find people who don't know Jesus and introduce them to him. And then we're supposed to make them disciples, baptize them, which is our initiation into the family of the church, and then teach them to, to talk like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to pray like Jesus, to do the things that Jesus did. This word disciple is an important word. It simply means one who is following Jesus. And we will unpack this in in months to come, almost every time we meet. Jesus uses this word, disciple. Well, this word, disciple, is used more in Scripture than the word Christian is used. And sometimes we can abuse the word Christian. But disciple, you know, you have to really want to say that because a lot of people don't use that word. But a disciple is one who is following Jesus. Here's some other things a disciple is. A disciple has trusted Jesus to save them and forgive them of their sins. A disciple has surrendered. That means they've recognized that Jesus is my Lord and I'm going to bow my knee to him. A disciple is one who has submitted to Jesus' process of changing me. And Jesus changes us day by day as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life to make us less of who we are when we first meet him and more like him over the course of our life until Jesus comes back or until we die and go to the grave. Second Corinthians 3.18 was one of my, one of, uh, you know, my wife and, and I's first favorite verses. This is a life verse for us. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the image, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So continuing with verse 18, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail. I see two things here. Jesus speaks of his own future death, that him dying is not going to prevent his church from being built. It's going to somehow continue on and that through the church and by the Holy Spirit. You know, the gates in, in biblical times were where the elders of a city gathered together to talk strategy to, to, you know, it was just a meeting place where they decided the things that were going to go on um, in that city. I mentioned uh, early in my sermon, this reference here uh, in Caesarea Philippi was actually called the gates of Hades. OK, and so this had special meaning. What Jesus is really implicating here is the cosmic battle. There is a cosmic battle that starts in Genesis three after Adam and Eve sinned and where Jesus uh, God curses the serpent. There's a cosmic battle where the serpent uh, firstly is, is at enmity with, with the woman, with the seed of the woman. And that runs through the course of the Bible all the way to Revelation 20, where the kingdom of darkness is opposed to the kingdom of light represented by Jesus. Jesus is saying the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail over my kingdom. Jesus is saying Jesus church is going to prevail. We are the church. We're going to prevail. That's good news. Christians should be on the offensive, really, is what this is talking about. We should be pushing back darkness, gaining ground for God's kingdom. This is an offensive verse. This is the role of the church. Our role is to be offensive, to go, as Jesus said in the Great Commission, make disciples. And sometimes we have to have, oftentimes we have to have an an offensive perspective of what he's asking us to do. So how do we take on an offensive posture as Jesus church against these gates of hell that Jesus says won't prevail? He tells us he gives us keys. What do you do with keys? You stick it in a lock 
you unlock it and then you press the handle to open the door. At least that's how I get in my house. How do y'all get in your house? All right, you use a key, unlock it, you press that door on open. Our keys are talked about in verse 19. Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Our keys are the gospel. Our keys are the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his birth, perfect life, death, and his resurrection. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is Jesus dying in my place. The gospel is I am a sinner and I don't deserve God's grace and his goodness, but he allows me because of how he sees me through the death of his son to be in relationship with him. The gospel says Jesus is enough. No matter how much I failed in life, Jesus died for me. He lived the perfect life for me, so I don't have to. We have been given Jesus' authority to go into the world and to invite those who are really God's enemies. Anybody that's not for God is against God. And he gives us those keys, the keys of the gospel, his good news to take it into our community right here in the midst of Kingstown and Alexandria to go unlock doors to people's hearts that people might be drawn by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus and have a life that's transformed from who they are right now to who they could be as they walk with God. This last phrase, binding and loosing, simply means that we, the church, what we do on earth has eternal ramifications and rewards. So why the transit? That's an important question for you all to, to ask me and for me to answer as, as I get close to closing, getting close to closing. You know, the church is God's plan A. I said that a couple times. The church is God's plan A, and he does not have a plan B. We're it. Look around. Seriously, look around. You're it. If you're in the church right now, if you're a Christian, a believer following Jesus, you are his. Isn't it scary? We are God's plan A. and He doesn't have a plan B. God has always had a, has a people that he has called to himself. He has always had a people that he's called to himself. Those people are the church. It's me and you. And the church is not a building. It's people. Jesus is the great church, uh, church builder. He is. Which means Jesus is building us. He's building you and me. He'll also yet build those who he's drawing to himself right in our own, right in our own neighborhood. Here's some statistics. There are 3,500 churches that close every year. That's just in the United States of America. And uh, let me fill this out. Uh, churches have a, everything has a life cycle. Churches have a life cycle. And so that's not a scare statistic. Uh, but it is telling. You ever notice that the churches that we read about in the Bible don't exist anymore? Churches have a life cycle. They, they, they birth, they live a life, and they end. I think it's supposed to be like that. And so the transit will, this is our birth, will have a, a life of, of, you know, of growing as God's grace allows us to. And then who knows how long our church will be in existence until God kills it, okay? And something else rises to its place. We are just getting to the point in the evangelical world where the number of churches that are starting are about equaling the number of churches that are, are dying off. And they're dying off for several different reasons, okay, that we don't need to talk about here. There are 5.6 million people here in the D.C. metro area. That's a lot of people. 
There's roughly 150,000 here in the city of Alexandria. There's 1 million uh, in Fairfax County. There's 16,000 right here in the neighborhood, the census-designated place of Kingstown. And what you should hear about that statistic, man, there's a lot of people, okay? What it says to me is there's a lot of people that potentially do not know God. And God has called us, the church, to take the keys of the gospel and to unlock doors to people's hearts, you know, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to partner with God, to help people find the Lord. Uh, Our mandate and Jesus' mandate from Scripture is that we go make disciples. He intends for us to be the go, to actually go out and to talk to people, to give them the hope that we have in ourselves, to share it with them and to impede the territory of darkness with the territory of God's light. So how can you respond today? And I'm, I'm almost done. You know, we're praying for kingdom laborers. We're looking for teammates. I like how Paul says it in the book of Philippians. He says, you know, we're partners in the gospel. We're looking for partnership in the gospel. Um, we are a fledging church. Just no, not just starting out, but really just starting out officially. Um, and we're looking for those who possibly may not uh, have a local church that you attend regularly. And if God is calling you, if you agree with our mission and our vision as I unfold it over the next two weeks, then we are asking you to consider partnering with us in, in the gospel. Secondly, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then I would tell you we'd love to help you wherever you are on your journey with God. If you're just peeking in, we hope to show you who Jesus is by how we live, even how we live more than our words, although words are important. We're not really about religion. We're not rules-regulated kinds of people. We want to expose you to the gospel that a life in Christ really is good news for us who, who you know, some, the people who need good news in life. I read Romans 1.16. We believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We believe the gospel is the only thing. When the Holy Spirit applies the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to your life, it's the only thing that can change you, really. And we all need to be changed. Thirdly, we're praying for people to connect with us along our journey. You know, we got this phrase, together on the journey. And we do really mean that. Um, God has called us in our vision to be a community of people um, that walk together, that rub elbows together, um, that rub shoulders together. Because the best way to grow, the best way to learn how to be a better husband or to be a better um, parent, to be a better mom, student is to be around those who are doing it and to do that together. And so if that sounds right for you, that's really what we are, uh, who we are as a church. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's our confession today. We declare that. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to respond rightly. We pray that you would speak to our hearts even now. That we might follow you. That we might be called a disciple of Jesus. 
that we might seek salvation in you, not in anything external, not in our good works, not in another person, the government, not even in those that are most dear to us, that we would surrender to you, bow our knee to you as Lord, that we would submit our lives to you. I pray for that. I pray that for these people who are here under the sound of my voice. And I pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. And amen.